You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. Then be your eyes the witness of this ill. See how I'm bewitched. Behold, mine arm is like a blasted sapling withered up. And this is Edward's wife, that monstrous witch, consorted with that harlot strumpet shore, that by their witchcraft thus have marked me. With these words, William Shakespeare's fictionalized version of King Richard III of England accuses his enemies of cursing his sword arm through witchcraft. Shakespeare's Richard III was probably first performed in or around 1592, the same year in which a real-life trial for witchcraft was taking shape. In the village of Warboys near Cambridge, Alice Samuels stood accused along with her husband and daughter of using witchcraft to torment the children of the local squire. The trial that followed would capture the attention of the nation, and within the next decade lead to a vast expansion of the laws against witchcraft in England. Today, I bring you the story of the Witches of Warboys. On November 10, 1589, Jane Throckmorton, the nine-year-old daughter of Robert Throckmorton, squire of Warboys, began suffering fits. According to one contemporary account, quote, sometimes she would sneeze very loud and thick for the space of half an hour together, and presently, as one in a great trance and swoon lay quietly as long, soon after would begin to swell and heave up her belly so as none was able to bend her or keep her down. Sometimes she would shake one leg and no other part of her, as if the palsy had been in it, sometimes the other. Presently she would shake one of her arms and then the other, and soon after her head, as if she had been infected with the running palsy. When a neighbor, Alice Samuels, came to visit Jane in the midst of her illness, Jane's mother and grandmother saw the girl exclaim, "'Grandmother, look where the old witch sitteth. Did you ever see one more like a witch than she is? Take off her black-thrummed cap, for I cannot abide to look on her.'" Jane's parents sent samples of her urine to a Dr. Barrow in Cambridge, who sent medicine, but to no avail. On seeing his cures fail, Barrow suggested, quote, that he had some experience of the malice of some witches, and he verily thought that there was some kind of sorcery and witchcraft wrought toward this child. Jane's parents ignored this at first, but then two of Jane's sisters contracted the same illness one month later, both complaining against Alice Samuels. Soon after, their two remaining daughters, the youngest, then nine years old, and the eldest, then fifteen, also fell ill, both crying out against Alice Samuels. Soon six of the household servants complained of similar afflictions. Of the girls, the eldest seemed the most affected. Her illness, quote, 
caused her to sneeze, screech, and groan very fearfully. Sometimes it would heave up her belly and bounce up her body with such violence that she was not kept upon her bed. The following February, the children's uncle, Gilbert Pickering, came to visit, finding the children to be, quote, very well as children could be. He and others went to Alice's house to invite her to come see the children, but she refused. Some saw this as evidence of her guilt in the girl's illness. After Pickering threatened her, she finally consented to go, accompanied by her daughter Agnes. According to contemporary accounts, as soon as Alice entered the hall where several of the Throckmorton children, including Jane, were standing, quote, At one moment they all fell down upon the ground, strangely tormented, so that if they had been let lie still on the ground, they would have leapt and sprung. Jane was taken to lie down in another room, but she clawed at the bed covers, crying out, Oh, that I had her! The girls continued to show their affliction whenever anyone sought to pray around them. The account equates the girls' aversion to prayer and piety with a love of witchcraft and Catholicism, offering more of a commentary on Catholic doctrine than on possession. According to witnesses, when one of the girls was in a fit, someone would ask the spirit possessing her, Love you the word of God, whereat she was sore troubled and vexed, But love you witchcraft, it seemed content. Or love you the Bible, again it shaked her. But love you papistry, it was quiet. Love you prayer, it raged. Love you the mass, it was still. Love you the gospel, again it heaved up her belly, so that what good thing soever you named, it misliked. But whatsoever concerning the Pope's paltry, it seemed pleased and pacified. At the same time, the spirit or spirits would allow the children to play cards or other games with whomever they chose, leaving them blind and deaf to all others. Robert Throckmorton happened to be friends with the wealthy and powerful Sir Henry Cromwell, whose grandfather, Thomas Cromwell, had served as chief minister to King Henry VIII. Sir Henry's wife, Lady Cromwell, came to visit Warboys in March 1590. No sooner had she entered the house than the girls all fell into their fits, which happened in the presence of any stranger. Lady Cromwell had Alice brought to her, According to the account, quote, Taking her aside, she charged her deeply with this witchcraft, using also some hard speeches to her, but she stiffly denied them all, saying that Master Throckmorton and his wife did much wrong to blame her without cause. During this conversation, Lady Cromwell reportedly grabbed a pair of scissors, cut off a lock of Alice's hair, and gave it to Mrs. Throckmorton to burn a folk remedy believed to weaken a witch's power. Alice said to Lady Cromwell, Madam, why do you use me thus? I never did you any harm as yet. Lady Cromwell claimed to be tormented in her dreams that night, saying that Alice Samuels sent a cat, quote, which cat offered to pluck off all the skin and flesh from her arms and body. After this, Lady Cromwell fell into a prolonged illness 
experiencing fits of her own, and died a short time later in October of 1592. Her husband, Sir Henry, died the following month. At the same time as more curious strangers came to the house, the girls began to converse with their spirits and an invisible Alice Samuels, calling her Dame Alice and insisting she was their employer. The girls began to accuse Alice more directly, saying they, quote, would bring her to confession or confusion. Alice was now forced to remain in the Throckmorton's house full-time, since the girls appeared to calm themselves in her presence and would only communicate with her. They tormented her, however, telling her to confess herself, saying that if she did not confess voluntarily, they would force her despite herself. When threats didn't work, the girls wept and begged her to confess herself a witch. In reply, Alice said, quote, that she would do for them all the good she could, but for confession of this matter she would not, for it was a thing she never knew of, nor consented unto. A few days before Christmas, Jane, the first girl to be afflicted, flew into an even more violent fit. Alice, who was present, quote, prayed she might never see the like again in any of them. The girls begged her to confess, quote, that they might be well and keep a merry Christmas. Throckmorton joined them in begging Alice to charge the spirit to end Jane's fit. Alice obliged, saying, I charge thee, spirit, in the name of God, that Mistress Jane never have this fit. Jane quieted, and Throckmorton asked Alice to do the same with all the children. Alice charged the spirit in the name of God to leave all the children immediately and never return. On hearing these words, the children suffering fits immediately stopped. Alice begged to be released to return to her family. Throckmorton let her go only after she confessed to being the cause of all the children's troubles. She confessed in the house and publicly in church the next day and was finally allowed to return to her husband and daughter. The next day, she recanted, saying she had only confessed under duress. Throckmorton threatened to bring her before the justices, but to no avail. Alice insisted on her innocence. Throckmorton had Alice and her daughter arrested the day after Christmas. They were to be taken to the Bishop of Lincoln on charges of witchcraft. Alice offered to confess once more in private, and appearing before the Bishop of Lincoln that same day, she confessed that she knew the children's illness was gone. A few days later, the bishop and two justices of the peace examined her again. She confessed to being possessed by spirits, saying she had received them from, quote, an upright man whose name she did not know, and crying out, O thou devil, I charge thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that thou tell me the name of the upright man which gave me the devils. Repeating that two more times, she said the spirits told her the man's name was Langland, that he had no dwelling, and that he had gone, quote, the last voyage beyond the seas. Alice was taken to Huntington, where she was imprisoned along with her daughter.
In January 1593, Throckmorton offered bail for Alice's daughter, Agnes Samuels, asking that she be sent to his house, quote, to see whether any such evidences of guiltiness would appear against her, as had before appeared in the children against her mother. His request was granted, and he brought Agnes home, where the children once again fell into fits and began to accuse Agnes, just as they had accused Alice, saying, quote, "...that the old woman hath set over her spirits to her daughter, and that she hath bewitched them all over again. The girls told their father that they would be well, however, if Agnes would just say, I charge thee, devil, as I love thee, and am a witch, and guilty of this matter." that thou suffer this child to be well at present. Under intense pressure from Throckmorton and other witnesses, Agnes repeated these words. The girls, of course, were instantly well. This cycle repeated, and the girls insisted that Agnes should confess even more, saying, I charge thee, devil, as I am a witch and a worser witch than my mother, and confessing to the death of Lady Cromwell. And... As I have bewitched Mrs. Pickering of Ellington, the girl's aunt, since my mother confessed, and again, as I would have bewitched Mistress Joan Throckmorton to death. Agnes was forced to repeat these charges against herself over and over as the children fell into fits. The girls, you see, refused to be still until Agnes had repeated all three confessions, including before the local magistrate. Not yet satisfied with the destruction of Alice and Agnes, the girls then began to accuse Alice's husband, John Samuels. Less inclined to bow to pressure, John refused to repeat the charges the girls placed on him. In court, John refused to confess until Jane Throckmorton was brought into the courtroom amid a fit. She said that if John Samuels would speak his confession, she would be well. The judge requested John to repeat the charges, but John refused, until the judge told him that if he persisted in his refusal, quote, the court would hold him guilty of the crimes whereof he was accused. With little choice, John repeated the words Jane gave him, saying, As I am a witch and did consent to the death of Lady Cromwell, so I charge thee, devil, to suffer Mistress Jane to come out of her fit at this present. Jane immediately stopped her fit and stood up. Perfectly well. John, Alice, and Agnes were tried on April 5, 1593, for the murder by witchcraft of Lady Cromwell and for bewitching the Throckmortons and others. Among the witnesses testifying against the family were Throckmorton and two churchmen the parson of Warboys, and the vicar of Ellington. Alice's words to Lady Cromwell, Madam, why do you use me thus? I never did you any harm as yet, were used against her at the trial as proof that she meant to harm Lady Cromwell afterward. By the end of the presentation of evidence, according to the record, quote, 
The judge, justices, and jury said openly that the cause was most apparent. Their consciences were well satisfied that the said witches were guilty and had deserved death. All three were found guilty of witchcraft. On the scaffold in Huntington, Alice confessed once more. John resolutely professed his innocence to the last. All three insisted that Agnes was innocent. All three were hanged on April 6th, 1593. It can be difficult for modern audiences to understand the witch craze that permeated England in the 16th and 17th centuries. How could the law permit the eradication of an entire family by a group of young girls? It helps to remember that the 1590s were an especially tense time in Europe in general, and England in particular. Decades into her reign, Queen Elizabeth I was facing new challenges in the form of a war with Spain that lasted nearly 20 years, and a series of rebellions. She had just been forced to try her own cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, for plotting against her leading to Mary's execution for treason in October 1586. A rapidly increasing population had led to poverty and famine in many cities, and disease was rampant. The mysterious illnesses and deaths of Sir Henry and Lady Cromwell in the fall of 1592 seem much less mysterious if you consider the multiple outbreaks of plague that had been striking English cities since 1589, when an outbreak in Newcastle caused some 1,700 deaths. By August of 1592, the plague had arrived in London, and by the time infections began to abate in the summer of 1593, some 2,000 Londoners were dead, including Queen Elizabeth's own chambermaid. This series of outbreaks in the 1580s and 90s ultimately led to the deaths of at least 15,000 in the city of London and nearly 5,000 more in London suburbs alone. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, Plague, Famine, War, and Death, had come to Elizabethan England. Add to this the tensions between English Protestants and Catholics, and you have an explosive situation. In 1581, the Act Against Reconciliation to Rome set hefty fines for attending a Catholic Mass, And in December of that same year, the Jesuit priest, Edmund Campion, was executed for treason, for promoting Catholicism, and preaching against the Protestant Church of England. No wonder, then, that those who witnessed the Throckmorton girls' afflictions considered witchcraft to be synonymous with love of all things Catholic. Amid such an array of catastrophes, it might have been tempting, even comforting, to believe that all this was the work of the devil's agents, rather than mere chance and human wickedness. In 1604, one year after the death of Queen Elizabeth, her successor, King James I, expanded the Witchcraft Act of 1563. His new act was entitled Act Against Conjuration, Witchcraft, and Dealing with Evil and Wicked Spirits, and prescribed death without benefit of clergy, not just to those who sought to harm others through witchcraft, 
but to anyone found guilty of invoking or communing with spirits. This was the statute under which the self-proclaimed Witchfinder General Matthew Hopkins would claim his authority. The Witchcraft Acts passed by Elizabeth and James in making witchcraft a felony transferred jurisdiction over witchcraft trials from church to state. While this entitled the accused to the same rights as any defendant, the case against Alice Samuels and her family demonstrates the many obstacles that defendants could expect. In 1692, almost a century after the hanging of Alice Samuels and her family, a similar act against conjuration, witchcraft, and dealing with evil and wicked spirits would be established across the Atlantic in the colony of Massachusetts Bay, just in time for another set of afflicted girls to accuse their neighbors of witchcraft in the town of Salem. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen, and please spread the word by rating and reviewing Enchanted on Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by me with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow Enchanted on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. As always, to learn more and check out the sources for each episode, visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening, and stay enchanted. <laughs>